Welcome back, listeners, to another Ag Watchers episode. We're actually just taking a short break from our series we've been running uh, on um, on agricultural sales methodologies. We've done grain and we've done uh, farm machinery, and we, we're going to do livestock. But um, we thought there was a very important development happening within the livestock processing space. Uh, so we've managed to secure one of the big wigs of the of the sector there, uh, and it's Patrick Hutchinson from AMIC. Um, so he's joined us to have a quick chat about some of the um, concerns that both he and the TEM team have got around um, some of these concern, or issues facing uh, the processing sector. Uh, Patrick, thanks for joining Andrew and I. Um, did you want to give us a quick rundown, a rundown of what you know the role is you do there, AMIC, and, um, and indeed what AMIC uh, are there for for the industry? No worries, Matt. Andrew, of course, thank you very much for having me. It's, a, it, it's yeah, it's a thrill. Look, uh, we at AMIC Australian Meat Industry Council, we represent all of the post-farm gate industry players from basically from as soon as it, it, it leaves right to uh, right to on a plate. So it's, it's uh, uh, fresh and frozen uh, red meat production. So that's beef, sheep uh, and goat. It's pork uh, processing in production. It's, it's major corporate small goods manufacturing. Uh, and then from a domestic scale that goes into our wholesaling through independent butchers uh, and in, on export, obviously, that's... Uh, Obviously, our exporters, be they uh, uh, processors or, in fact, uh, what we call non-packer exporters. So, you know, and we work exceptionally hard. We've got a very big, broad footprint around Australia of, of members, and we have a pretty big influence over the way in which the uh, the meat and livestock industry uh, uh, turns, uh, especially in regards to, um, yeah, post-farm gate. That's good. Good summary there. Actually, you've done this before by the look of things, Patrick. Um, and so it's been, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of stuff with COVID um, that's been putting processing sector front and centre in terms of within the media, but there's been a couple of significant developments. I guess we'll start off on the most recent one first. We've seen, uh, Patrick, the Victorian government come out again now, uh, which we saw a bit, bit of the same last year, but it was a bit more widespread. Um, this capacity restriction being put in place for processors within the Melbourne metro region at this stage. I believe it's a 20% reduction in workforce capacity um, as of a couple of days ago. Um, you've got some concerns around that. Do you want to just keep, outline? Keep, it keeps you on your toes, Patrick, though, introducing something at <laughs> half past 10 on a Saturday for, <laughs> for, 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 for two hours later. Yeah, that, that yeah those, have, been, those of uh, the listeners that have had to be exposed to, to DHHS and their... Uh, uh, their ways in Victoria would know that they're all about consultation uh, or lack thereof. And uh, unfortunately, that's what we found ourselves in. So, yeah, it, it, it has been a very disappointing outcome, obviously. Uh, it, it has come, if you could ever think it could come at a right time, it has come at a right time uh, as far as uh, throughput is, con- is concerned. And, and uh, you know, obviously, you boys at TEM, give me a lot of information which I'm very grateful for in regards to throughput around uh, certainly for the lambs uh, coming through um, in Victoria in from August then September October November and we know how it scales up so whilst we might be running at a lower capacity at the moment it, 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 you know the, the, the propensity to scale up the reports that we've seen on forecasts of say lamb production and and what's coming through the system suckers hitting the market very shortly four weeks. Uh, if if we're if we're lucky, um, you know, it could be earlier than that. Uh, it, it, it all then leads towards, uh, as I read, you know, from what you boys have said, 
almost a 30% incremental month-on-month increase. Now, we were here this time last year and we were on our knees begging to try and get, you know, we had a we had a, a 33% reduction at that stage. So to come back at this point again, when cases are quite low, uh, you know, really, and frankly, I've been quoted as saying, pisses me off. Now, that being the set, that that being the case, what is our bigger worry is that if we see what's happened in New South Wales, where there's been a uh, a real stagnation in numbers and then the, and then a jump. What is going to be the decision making here? And if that happens at a time that we're seeing a huge amount of lamb hit the market, then you guys know better than anybody in regards to throughput. But more importantly, we then start to have managing animal welfare. We've then got to start managing logistics. We've then got to start looking at even countries around the world. I mean, we've seen it last year where we were concerned around issues in relation to getting lamb up into the UK uh, for Christmas. So, you know, that's, that's one market on its own through one supply chain on its own and you know i'm working very hard with the uh, coals and bullies as well looking at those supply numbers and looking at you know those throughput numbers especially at a time when we we're also desperately looking for workers so you've also now created this uh scenario where people are now looking at working in our industry and saying geez is it is it is it safe so again you know we've lost all opportunity to actually put our point forward and now we're having to play catch up. And that's the unfortunate part. And I guess that's, you, you might know more than us, but there probably is a bit of uncertainty at the moment because we don't know whether this is going to be, you know, another three weeks of lockdown, a week of lockdown, or like last time, another three months of lockdown. But, but, Amazingly, like, but like, like you say, you've probably been getting consulted a lot more than we have. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. Amazingly, though, Andrew, I, I think probably... It should be uh, it should be recognised that again we don't know. So um, and whilst we have no line of sight because apparently we don't need it uh, in regards to forecasting on potentially where numbers could go, what what the parameters are looking like, what should we be prepared for? Um, just a wave of the hands and the premier to say, no, it doesn't matter. Food security safe. Just don't worry about it. Um, we, you know, then we got hit with. Uh, a recognition around that uh, Fletcher's was closed for a week, if not two, because of COVID in the Dubbo area. Him doing the right thing as a business, Roger, and his team doing the right thing as a business. Next minute, panic phone calls from Victorian stock agents going, you know, we're, we're now in a similar scenario where the nation's biggest lamb and, and, and certainly mutton pro, uh, uh, buyer is out of the market. Now, if you're then also having to make requirements around that to reduce 20% of your workforce, and you have no forecast of how long that's going to be, then you're going to then start to be making some pretty tough decisions. And I suppose one of those two is the fact that, you know, we've got about uh, 33% of the workforce in Victoria fully vaccinated, but that's an average. Some places it could be 80, some places it could be 10. So what do you then do? Do you then look at that and say, well, if you're not vaccinated, don't bother coming back? which then sends the wrong message again. So a lot, not much thought uh, and pretty much a thing of saying, well, you know, that uh, they're the guys that uh, we had a couple of issues with last year uh, and we won't really worry about what they've been doing this year. We'll just guess that they're the same as they were before and then we'll just apply it. So it's, it, it, it really is a scenario that um, 
uh, we've got to be very careful of. And um, uh, you know, we've had a discussion with VFF around this as well. It's it, it's not simplistic. Because that's what I was yeah. going to. That's what I was going to say. Sorry, Matt. Uh, we had last week. Obviously, you, you you look after the processors, but one of the processors in uh, fruit and horticulture, SPC, they came out last week and said, uh, or maybe two weeks ago, saying they've got to, everyone has to be vaccinated. Qantas is the same. Uh, I know that in abattoirs, I'm uh, I'm pretty sure you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. You have to be Q fever vaccined up to 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 work there. It's it's a job requirement. My wife has to have the flu vaccine as her work every year. Do you think the industry is going to sort of mandate vaccines across the board or has there been no... At this stage, no, because we've got worker hesitancy. We've got a lack of access to vaccine in the first place. We've got a rural and regional workforce that we then have to... We've got to bus in and bus out trying to get that there. You can only mandate on... You can only mandate vaccination if you actually get access to on-site. Now, I, I think with all the numbers and everything else that's going on and the fact that uh, it's okay for uh, uh, for Alan Joyce to sort of put off however many thousands of workers at that time, he can then tell them, okay, you've got six to eight weeks to go out there and potentially become vaccinated and then come back into the workforce because that's when we forecast things will turn over. I uh, had the privilege of listening uh, at, a, uh, at a function today to their... CEO of, um, of NAB, and he said uh, clearly that, you know, potentially Freedom Day could be um, uh, not till November for these vaccinations based on the modelling that's there. And I think he said based on the modelling that's been circulated, 70% of the uh, the population will be on Melbourne Cup Day. So, you know, uh, uh, no increase in interest rates and uh, full vaccine, you know, uh, uh, welcome to freedom. Um, but then you've got Queensland and WA saying, we don't care. You know, you're going to have to have no cases or limited to no cases uh, for us to come back in, which then, you know, causes further further friction. So, and what it also does is it then causes paralysis in policymaking and that in turn leads to who gets access to what vaccination. Where 1B, uh, high-risk industry, apparently, on the federal government's vaccination rollout, yet... People who were classed in 2A and 2B, including people like me, have already walked in front and got fully vaccinated. So how have we allowed that to happen? And it's been because that whilst we've had all these scenarios in place, where policy has collapsed, chaos has, has, has reigned and it allowed the opportunity for us to turn around and then to basically say, well, what we're going to do is doesn't matter who comes in off the street, get a vaccination. All we care about is a desperation of vaccination where what we want, we want on-site vaccination. So people can get their vaccination, do the mandatory time to rest and recuperate around that and then get back to work. And if there's any ill, Ill, Ill side effects, then you're able to manage them person to person. Yeah. So, but we don't get that. So Cause that, Yeah, because that's been one of the things that I considered initially when, when SPC, is SPS or SPC? SPC. SPC. When, when they initially came out with it, my, my first thought was, well, look, it's, not not a bad thing it's but but i guess i think from a point of view of it's not on their con- current contract that they have to have it so technically it's i just wonder from from like a employment law point of view whether it's a change in contract difficult and one to enforce it's a bit like saying well you know you have to do this now for your job well 
Yeah, no, and I'll, that's, I'll, that's I'll, I'll, to... I'll take I'll take a redundancy. Thanks. I've been there twenty five years. See you later. <laughs> so... Well, it's difficult. It's difficult too, Andrew, because uh, what you find <laughs> is that uh, potentially people have started to say uh, either I'm so big like Qantas, government's going to back me, so I will then come forward and I will then get back get help getting vaccinated people vaccinated, or I could be SPC and I don't know this personally, but. They may have 70% of their people vaccinated already. So what they're really doing is trying to force the tail to, to push all the way through so that they don't have potential. And, and where are they based? Shepparton. And what have we seen now in this latest Victorian outbreak? <laughs> An outbreak in Shepparton. Outbreak Shepparton. It's a good point you make too, Patrick, regards Qantas. And we did see, you know, with Alan Joyce coming out um, on this round of, I guess, uh, COVID spread, that he was, um, you know, putting people on standby, I think they called it, and and effectively, you know, there's not as much trouble getting around. There's only the very few that are travelling. So, you know, an industry like the airlines, I guess, you know, have the ability to stand people down or go down to a very small crew operational. Um, last time I checked, there's still a fair, fair bit of the population continuing to eat meat products every day of the week. Um, so, you know, it's not really a sector that you can just all of a sudden just kind of wind down and, and, and stand down without having some significant repercussions all through the supply chain right the way back to the farm gate. You know, we certainly saw that um, in, uh, in, the, in the US when we had mm. the COVID lockdown of processing there that was mainly beef and, and pork. Um, you know, for the month or so that they were impacted there, we, we were looking at something like 50 to 40 to 50 percent price declines at the sale yard for beef and hogs. Um, you know, so it's imperative that we get this sorted out. And, and you know, we know we looked at it, we're staring this down the face last year um, uh, with, with the restrictions we had in place. Um, but thankfully, uh, you know, it was one of those things where we were able to get through and got back to capacity before this spring flush, particularly for sheep, meat and lamb. Um, but, um, you know, I've got real concerns if we get this spread out into the the regions and then the rest of Victoria, you know, rolls into another type of lockdown where, uh, you know, processing gets included as well. And, and, and we have, you know, all of the Victorian processes with a capacity restriction like we saw last year uh, and it rolls into October, November. That's going to be a, an absolute nightmare when it comes to, um, you know, to the supply chain. Yeah, Matt, and, and for your listeners uh, who are no doubt supplying or getting ready to supply lamb uh, in Victoria to processes, you know, I, I just urge them, they've got to start talking to local MPs, they've got to start talking to VFF, and they've got to be making sure that these knee-jerk reactions without consultation with industry and ensuring that uh, uh, that they demand that they don't need to consultate with industry will effectively ensure that what you're saying will come to fruition. And so, you know, I uh, am amazed to see how, um, uh, you know, across Australia how different plans are being brought out. The ANIC uh, COVID safe guidelines in their second or third version have actually been put up as a gold standard over the last 12 months. The way in which the processing industry has managed COVID and managed the outcomes. I mean, here's a classic, you know, for want of a better term, stupidity of what has just happened has been that as part of the new orders in Victoria, they've asked to re uh, um, uh, have asked to re-engage or reinstate COVID safe marshals. We never de-engaged. Never got rid of them. <laughs> That's right. They've always been there since since we started. So we take all that exceptionally seriously. But the problem, as you guys know, as forecasters know, you don't ask the question, you don't get the answer. And that's unfortunately what's happened here. They have not asked the question of what actually is happening. 
They've gone looking for their own answer. And their own answer was, oh, well, 12 months ago, these guys were a bit of a problem. So let's just turn that setting on again. That should solve it. And that 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 has you know it has big implications. So it just shows that you know there's more and and this is not and, and unfortunately it's not a Department of Ag in Victoria issue. It's actually a Department of Health issue and departments not talking to each other, which in this day and age, in in a global pandemic, is a frightening output. Do you think do you think a lot of like abattoirs and whatnot already had sort of good controls in place for biosecurity for animal health points of view yeah do you think Absolutely. That, do you think that gave a bit of a a leg up in terms of the ability to react to covid i think because, probably more importantly andrew what it's done is we have a very uh, a strong sense of, from biosecurity but more on that phytosanitary area sanitation sterilization we lead the world we have to so we're producing, especially at that meat processing level, beef, sheep, goat and pork, we're producing fresh product, fresh perishable temperature controlled product. So essentially we have all of those things in place. Now the key aspect that we've seen in regards to the virus circulating was that it, it circulated fast, it circulated through, uh, through the air and it circulated in the cold and it circulated through people who were working in close quarters. Uh, what you talked about before, Matt, in regards to America, um, you know, it was it was because just like in Victoria, the virus was out of control in the community. The community brings a virus into these settings, and then uh, it, 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 it's um, uh, it, it's it's exacerbated in the way in which it's then contracted by other people, and then they take it back out into the community. So ten people come in with it, and thirty people leave, as opposed to going into a shopping centre with 10 people come in, but only 15 might leave with it. So it just accelerated, but that was it. But our industry was made to look like globally that it was a, a, a dangerous place to work. It was unsafe, it was dirty, and all of this other stuff that occurred. And it, it crushed uh, supply chains. Great example, Wendy's, uh, that thrive on suggesting that they do not have Australian product in their burgers. It is only it is only American product. Twenty percent of their stores closed. Imagine if twenty percent of McDonald's stores in Australia shut. It would be a logistical nightmare in regards to where does that other product and a domestic grinding product for beef go? Might be good now, for health. That might, might, be, might be good. Might be good for long term healthcare though. If you over yeah, if you overconsume, then that's uh, that. Then you, you might be right there, Andrew. So let, let's not let's let's save it for another podcast around things like manufactured plant protein. I don't stuff. think um, I don't on the uh, Ag Watchers podcast, Patrick. I don't think healthy eating features very prominently when Andrew and I are always discussing uh, the 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 joys of eating black pudding and haggis and uh, and all these other kind of meat based products. That, um, that, 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 you that, have to that, look. That is that is a good segue, Matt, because we haven't we haven't. This is one of the few podcasts we haven't yet mentioned black pudding. <laughs> and, and, and and now you have. And now you have. So, so, so I've got a few questions for you on that very topic. One, one of the issues that, like, I've got a friend of mine who's a, a Scottish butcher in, yep. in Melbourne. And one of the major issues they've had is, is getting access to, to offal, getting mm -hmm. access to, to blood to actually, uh, basically to make black, black pudding, which is, you know, a delicacy. One of, one of the, uh, 
one of the products that is uh, a su future superfood, full of iron, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and it's also environmentally friendly. It's, it's a recyclable product. You know, we're using all the bits and pieces of of the animal, but that has been an issue: is getting access to blood. And I don't know if that's something that you can lobby for on my behalf. Is, getting is, access to blood is something that I can lobby. Look, that's uh, that, that's 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 got a brand new placard and poster written all over. It, so if, if you if you could if you could talk to your friends at you know I don't know Diamond oh, Valley or, or all the pork processors and just see if you can make it just a little bit easier to get access to. A, Andrew, know. Andrew, for you, it mate, it's not a problem at all. I'm sure that there's that there potentially is plenty to go around, and uh, um, you know I think though you mentioned something, but and, and on a more serious note around. I'm as serious as I can be. It, it's, um, it, it's all total carcass value. And um, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, something that I sort of half came up with and um, uh, then won't shut up about ever since. But essentially, um, it really is about educating uh, your, your, your listeners, educating the wider community, uh, educating, um, uh, you know, policymakers and regulators that we are about taking a whole, disassembling it and selling all the parts. Now, all the parts then have a value. So you don't then buy a car and say, well, guess what, mate? It's, a, you know, it, it's it's 400 bucks for the steering wheel and it's 2,000 bucks for the brakes and it's 800 bucks for a bench seat, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You, uh, you buy the car. Now, what we do is that we take all that back out and then we resell it all over the place. Now, as we know, and as your the uh, the famous TEM processor margin will tell us, is that at the moment we're not really getting that at the moment. We're not getting that margin, and effectively, it's because we're also trying to be selling products. Hides, we're seeing hides and skins having a rebound, which is great. We in, in some areas, but it's not going to underpin margin of a great magnitude. So people think that we're making great margin out of nine cuts and, uh, uh, you know, when you've got an, uh, an eight-score Wagyu, uh, Wagyu line there, that's great. But guess what? No one really says, oh, great, we've also got an eight-score Wagyu uh, kidney or we've got an eight-score Wagyu hide or we've got an eight-score Wagyu collagen uh, and gelatin and, and all of those things. So, you know, blood in a lot of circumstances is actually used in pharmaceuticals. Red and white blood cells and plates and those sorts of things we utilise and create. So, you know, we've got uh, it, it's such a huge range and opportunity of products that we create, even from inedible often. And again, not for this podcast, because uh, uh, I'm sure people would go to sleep and would have too many car accidents, people listening to it in the car, listening to me talk about these different things. But if, you know, I could have another podcast just on China, <laughs> and what China did, China underpinned a lot of total carcass value because it kept adding to parts of the carcass that didn't have value. $5 a kilo for mutton neck bones. Then you'd say, and then I would then be sitting there using that as an example to regulators and I'd be using it to politicians. And they'd turn around to me and say, well, that's okay. We're diversifying your market. You can sell them elsewhere. I said, but nobody else wants them. Wants them. Chicken feet. Chicken feet's another one that Chinese are keen on. So um, we're gonna we're gonna touch on that um, processor side shortly, but before we go too far away from the the labour side of things, because we've we've kind of skirted around it, and you've mentioned it a few times, Patrick, about how this um this kind of COVID um scenario and and all the narrative around the processes has made it more difficult again 
to find and secure staff and keep staff. But um, that's that was another looming kind of crisis that it's now also been added to with the COVID restrictions. Is just the ability of finding staff with um, with both the restrictions, you know, in people coming into the country, um, and the fact that I guess there's money going around to people. Um, you know, that, that doesn't require them then to have to work in, in some of these sectors because they're getting paid to, to sit at home and, and be in isolation. Um, you know, what, what's the concern there now also leading into, again, in Victoria, this spring flush about the ability to find labour? And, and is this ag visa that's now been touted, is that, you know, are we comfortable that's going to be a solution for the processing sector or are we still got big concerns around actually getting the labour? Oh, it's part of the solution, Matt, absolutely. And, you know, what I try to uh, educate people on is saying, and it's pretty hard for people, you know, south of Sydney to explain this, uh, but it's, it's like a rugby match. It's like a rugby team. And essentially there are positions for everyone, every body type, every structure. There are positions uh, that you can utilise. Uh, and meat processing is no different. We have unsealed, semi-skilled, highly skilled areas, automation, robotics, uh, you've got food science, you've got food technology, you've got sales and marketing, you've got brand development, um, and you've got guys that are working on the factory floor. You've got guys that are coming in with no skills whatsoever that can learn on the job. And with all of that structure that we have in place, in turn, we have to then uh, uh, access a pool of labour. Now, that labour is both domestic and international. Because, um, uh, and just like a rugby team, you're looking at it from a domestic international perspective and saying, well, on a domestic side, here's where I can uh, uh, pull labour from. Here's where I can get rugby players from. Do they all fit the bill? Probably not. Well, they do. So I'm going to go to Fiji and get some wingers or I'm going to go to Fiji and get some uh, and get some workers as we've done through the Pacific Labour Scheme. So, you know, we, it, it, it allows the opportunity to actually build around that business. And ag and, and the upcoming Australian ag visa, which has been created, which takes into account processing, has been fantastic because it allows us an opportunity to broaden that pool in order for us to also be able to get better skills and new skills potentially, but also get access to people through an unskilled and semi-skilled area to be able to undertake these factory jobs. They are factory jobs, but they're, they're, they're a weekly pay packet. And they're an opportunity to actually move up in, in, in industry. I know some great guys that uh, have started on the, on the slaughter floor and have gone through to be uh, you know, overall uh, managers of, uh, of businesses. And so, you know, there, there's a, a great opportunity uh, from a step-by-step process. And these, but and as these... you pointed out, when we get to people who then say, oh, well, we've got to put a 20% cap on workers because it's a high-risk area to work due to COVID, then the uh, ongoing effect of that is it's not safe, I'm not going there. Yeah. So that reputational damage is very hard for us to manage and, and to fulfil. So the same government that wants to tell you it's backing you is also putting these things in place and inadvertently uh, are knocking you over. And, and those new visas, they're also offering a bit of a, uh, a pathway to sort of permanent residency as well, aren't they? I think. Oh, yeah, that's right. And, and you know, we have meat industry labour agreements, which we create and deliver. Uh, it links into making sure that people are paid the award wage and sometimes paid above the award wage. Um, so I've had very interesting discussions, sometimes with unions, sometimes with others uh, uh, in that sort of pro-domestic worker area saying, you know, you're just, you know, you're looking for cheaper labour. 
It actually costs no, no, it costs more. a lot more. <laughs> yeah, it costs more to have an overseas worker than it does a domestic worker. And, and I, we're and actually then. But the amazing thing is, you then pay a tax on them, which goes through to the um, Skilling Australia Fund, which is then supposed to turn back around and fund domestic workers to actually come and work for you. So, and, and, and if you if you look at a place like Katani, Katani is a good example because they've small country town, uh, but. It, fantastic community that's been basically built up from you know various different nationalities in that town it's probably i think somebody told me it's one of the most multicultural towns and areas in the whole of australia and fantastic restaurants as well because you know people have you know worked in the abattoir or the and their partners have set up restaurants and cafes and brought entrepreneurship to it and look it's it's good because I think it's just another access, and obviously I'm an immigrant, so I can I can I can talk from from that. I'm, I'm trying to bring you know my multiculturalism to the country, yeah, I, I and, 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 and that's why I'm trying to lobby you know for additional so the access to, to blood and oats. Um, the uh, the other thing, and I'm not sure, Patrick, if it was you that made this point publicly, but I know someone within the um, processing meat processing sector specifically quoted this um, not long ago, and it stood out to me particularly with the um, with the feeling now that we've seen um, around the, the broader manufacturing industry within Australia and we, we know uh, the pathway that's been seen in um, in the car industry and how that's declined and in the clothing in textile industry and how that declined and the point was made that that nowadays within Australia that um, meat processing is the largest of the manufacturing type um, industries within the country now that, that's is that is that was that you that said that yeah, was that uh, well, certainly we are in the and it deviates a little bit, but certainly food processing overall is number one. But but meat is in is certainly in the top three, and that's um, it's funny because you then go and talk about that with um, uh, certain ministers, and they're sort of just looking at you quite bemused, and you say, "Look, it's an inverse manufacturing. You know, we bring in the whole, we disassemble it, we take the parts, and we sell all the parts everywhere." Your record um, yeah. So as opposed to the mentality of Oh, no, 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 you're going to bring all the parts and then make this whole and sell that and we'll fund you and we'll keep you going. And that is, it's not that recognition. It's still factory work. It's still factory line work. Uh, it's the same. And as Andrew's pointed out, uh, as, as, uh, as a somewhat assimilated immigrant that he is talking about like putting on a, uh, uh, on a, on a podcast, I, uh, I see it all over. There's not a, 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 a state in Australia that does not have a great story like Billawila in Queensland or Young in New South Wales or Pyramid Hill in uh, Victoria or even looking at, at places like Murray Bridge uh, in, um, uh, in South Australia where you've got these fantastic cohorts of people who are living there. Uh, they bring vibrancy to the local community. They actually underpin the local economy that in some areas was declining because people were either trying to go in from larger centres uh, and then they get jack of travelling and stop doing that because they don't want to live in the local area that's there. They live, they want to live in that local area that's there, and then they they uh, uh, they really engage with the community and involve it. And uh, you know, the, I think it was the, the the local cinema and young was turned into a mosque, and there's all these different things that have been created. And you know, it's it's what makes Australia great, and it's what makes it what it is. And the scenario is, is that you don't then want people who want to whiten our workforce, for want of a better term, thinking that the, the answer always is, you know, if I go local, that local equals votes. 
well, you know, most of these people are moving to permanent residency. Guess what? They vote too. And if you're not, you know, if you're not underpinning local, regional and rural manufacturing with an opportunity which links to the one, uh, uh, the one cohort of people, the one profession that our current federal government is singly obsessed with, and that's farmers. And if you're not underpinning farmers with uh, uh, the manufacturing uh, ability to, uh, uh, to manufacture the raw material that they create and provide you, then in fact, uh, you're not helping farmers. Helping us helps farmers. Helping farmers doesn't necessarily help us. And, and we, we spoke with, with Liz Jackson about this on a podcast or probably this time last year, I reckon, Matt. Yeah, it'd be close, yeah. And, and it was about the importance of understanding that it's not just farmers, it's the entire supply chain that is, you know, it's symbiotic with one another. What, one of the arguments that I've heard a lot in recent times is um, we need to get the uh, either A, the people on the dole out and working in those and just force them to work, and, and B, we need to get the prisoners and <laughs> force them to work, uh, which to me seems like, a dodgy idea to get people working in abattoir who don't want to be there. Although, interestingly enough, uh, I don't know if you saw this, Patrick, but in in Scotland and England, uh, some of the meat processors there have been campaigning to have prisoners work yeah. on on shifts. Which, you know, to me, like I always thought, you know, having people with knives, uh, with, crim- with 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 violent criminal backgrounds is probably not the best uh, best thing to do. But look, I, I think it's just a case of, you know, you want to get the right people in who are enthusiastic about, about that role and, and who, who want to be yeah. there. And, and Andrew, again, it comes back to the fact that um, uh, if you want to be supporting and servicing, uh, from what I read not only too recently, Australia's number one trusted profession, um, which commod- normally is, commod- is commod- commod- nurses commod- and healthcare, normally being nurses in healthcare, and that's sort of moved along the way with COVID, but certainly in the top three for many years has been farming and farmers and the way in which they're viewed and the way in which done. you're not going to be able to sustain that and to sustain that vision. And this is where I have very big, healthy, robust discussions uh, in regards to the $100 billion by 2030 farm go value. If we're the biggest industry in agriculture, which is what we are, and we are suffering... Uh, 66% of my members are only operating at 80% of less capacity as at today. And that is because they lack the workforce to be able to turn it up. Now, you boys talk very clearly and very eloquently around the lack of supply and where that's going, but we're seeing and forecasting that it's not just, it might not even be this year, but in the next two to three years, uh, better wets in the north, uh, uh, underpinning good um, uh, soil, subsoil moisture that can last for 18 months going down through the south, through the central wheat belts, etc. all leads towards better seasons coming on uh, for, for a number of years to come. That encourages people to invest that encourage, with, with high record livestock prices, which do keep me up at night, but I'm sure uh, uh, keep farmers up at night because they keep partying. But <laughs> I, you know, overall for us, what it does is, is it then it, it, we want higher life surprises basically because it encourages reinvestment and rebuilding and, and growth that we then take that raw material and, and, and then obviously process it. But all of the metrics around policy development and delivery 
from an industry, community and government aspect have got to recognise that gate to plate mentality, that if you only do the gate, it can't make the plate. And so that's why we're very keen. And I've got to tell you, Dave, a little proud um, in, in, this, in this time of his in the second run of him being an agriculture minister has been a fantastic um, partner to the processing industry, better than we've ever seen in a very long time federally. We've done modernisation of meat regulation, uh, the ag visa, with, which he specifically fought hard to have meat processing in there because our settings are different to horticulture for three-month watermelon pickers. We want four-year people that move to permanent residency. So there's all that recognition. We're very lucky with David being there and, and, and underpinning it with that. But it's all going to link in this wonderful federation. And it's all going to link together and all that policy development's going to link together and the direction's going to link together. Uh, and, uh, and as I said, you know, we can't live in a bubble of state versus state because even as we said earlier, what we've seen in Victoria, uh, Fletcher's closes down for, you know, 10 working days. And the market in Victoria all of a sudden starts to uh, have, a, have a huge panic. So, yep, yep. And that was on the back too. Like, we, I, I did see the numbers there. I know Bendigo uh, for the sheep side had a drop in yardings that week because the, the producers, I think, were holding back because they knew there wasn't the buying co- competition. But they also were reporting like $20 a head, you know, kind of reductions in price just there. Um, we saw similar scenarios in and around Dubbo, of course, too, with um, both slaughter and yardings um, significantly lower. You can see the chart for um, for New South Wales slaughter I posted a couple of days ago on Twitter on the, I think, the Meat Watcher or a TM account that show just a massive drop in uh, in weekly um, slaughter for New South Wales just because of that that reduction. So, you know, it's a crucial crucial part of the supply chain. And, we, and Andrew mentioned about the, the chat we had with Liz Jackson last year um, from Curtin Uni. Um, and, and we made the point there as well. And we were talking a bit about the process of margin model, which I'll go to now. Um, but our concern with Liz and our concern with you is, is around, um, you know, when you see a part of the supply chain that's, that's under the amount of pressure that processing has been under and specifically beef processing, because that's all our model covers off on. But, you know, we, we, we assume that there's similar kind of um, concerns around what's going on with the sheep processing side too, with the high prices we're seeing there at the, um, the sale yard. But, um, you know, from, from your perspective, Patrick, you know, is, uh, are we going to, you know, like we, we know by the numbers that what's forecast for the rest of this year into next year that it's highly likely um, it's going to be a tough operating environment for processes right the way through to probably, you know, kind of maybe mid to late 2023. Um, you know, is, is, are we going to kind of, you know, see big issues with regards to, the ability for processes to hang in there, or are we going to see some rationalisation and consolidation? Um, you know, how how um, from on the ground, how um, how difficult is it? Because certainly the numbers um, the numbers look bad from the, from the modelling. Um, you know, what are you hearing from your from your members? Mm. Well, I mean, I suppose the first point, Matt, is that you know these are these are uh, highly sophisticated uh, processing factories. And, you know, it's not as simple as, well, we'll just turn it off for two, two to three weeks, wait for the price to get better and then just turn it back on again. I always have great pleasure in, in uh, listening to stock agents continually bemoan, whilst earning 4%, continually bemoaning <laughs> that, um, uh, you know, oh, well, they're just shutting down, you know, to manage and muck around with the price. thing is, you turn that thing on again, you know, what, you know, it takes 10 minutes to turn it off and sometimes it takes 10 days to turn it on. So it is not 
as clear-cut and simplistic as people might think. So the decision-making process to close to close down puts you back, puts you back in your markets, puts you back with your customers, puts you back with a whole host of things like that. And, you know, you, you, you then start to run out of freezer space, you then start to run out of freezer space, others start to run out of freezer space too. Um, and so the supply chain really starts to grind down and, you know, had it not been for a lot of work that Omic had done to then finally convince the farming fraternity to change the definition of lamb, there could have been a lot of lambs, you know, breaking teeth the next minute. They are, uh, you know, rent, you know, we know how much that that can, gets dropped in regards to price so uh, and value. So we really um, don't want to be in a position where these are occurring. That being said, these guys are also... Uh, having to maintain very large workforces. Uh, some of them are parts of more global entities and, you know, their businesses are going to wipe their noses. So all of those things taking into consideration, um, you know, and governments invest in these areas too. Governments invest in expansions and government invests in uh, in, in different areas uh, within, a, within a facility. So, you know, they've got an investment too and they've got to get, uh, they want to see return from taxpayers' money. So we've got to be making sure that inevitably that we do not see kinks in that. And that's why we have seasonal shutdowns in the quietest months, you know, coming into Christmas and going into the new year uh, to get all that maintenance done because, you know, you don't want to be out of the market for, for any length of time. And again, as I pointed out previously, if anyone uh, speaks to any of the processors who've been out of China for any length of time, you will know being out of the market uh, be it all markets or just one, uh, it does hit a bottom line. And I know one uh, processing facility uh, that was impacted by COVID that it was uh, it was had to temporarily suspend from China. It's been out for twelve months and they've lost seventy five million dollars. So it's not like it's uh, uh, you're you're trying to muck around with the market in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. So um, I think, look, we, we're getting to the stage where we've taken up a lot of your time, but I thought I'd just give the opportunity to give us a quick summary. If you could wave your magic wand, Patrick, and, and solve two pressing issues right now, what would be the two you'd pick out, you know, to, to get kind of sorted straight away for the sector? Yeah, I think firstly, Matt, it's, it's around uh, workforce. It's certainly around uh, trying to have that domestic and international workforce capacity um, uh, solved. Uh, we're looking for that permanent workforce at all times and whatever strategies that we need to have in place, we've got to have in place. Um, I don't think I'd like to wave a magic wand around supply because I think that uh, sometimes we, 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 never, we never feel we have too much. But, um, uh, you know, at this stage, certainly in 2020 and 21, we've, we've not had enough. I think the, the other thing probably would be, if I was going to wave a magic wand, it would be around getting the respect and recognition that we're now starting to see, we're getting it more broadly on the importance of our industry, what it actually means. And it's been quite interesting. That producer processor rhetoric is really starting to disappear very quickly. Um, uh, we're seeing uh, state farming organisations and national bodies wanting to work more with us, looking at the strategies. What is it going to be? People are now waking up and recognising. Now, it could be new generations coming into farming, farming representative, farming politics, uh, uh, et cetera, that has recognised that why do we keep spitting on the people who actually buy our product? 
So, um, I, you know, I don't really see Woods and Coles slapping people for buying too many gym tents. So it, it, it still continues to be something that, uh, that, that we see. But certainly that would be on that. And the other one that we haven't had time to talk about today, which uh, is very important for you guys in the background, is certainly logistics. Uh, international sea freight is, is a basket mm. case. Mm. We are seeing lack of containers all over the world and being very difficult for us. And the lack of containers is because people are making more money putting dry goods into reefers than it is putting meat. So that makes it very difficult for us to, to do that. And it's something that is, is, is coming uh, uh, slowly but surely, uh, together with a huge amount of increase in protected action by unions on wharves um, and mass increase in cost from stevedores at the same time, all happening at once. So plenty to discuss and many other podcasts coming up. For sure. Well, um, you've been, look, you've been very kind to come on uh, as busy as you are, Patrick, at, at very short notice too, to cover off on some of these kind of um, immediate concerns. So thanks for, for coming on and sharing your thoughts. You're, you're passionate and a very um, outspoken advocate for the sector. So we're kind of you know, pleased to have you on. So I'm sure we'll get you back again. Um, thanks very much for, for coming on. I'm sure Andrew, did you want to run through the wind down and um, have any final comments? Yeah, no, just my, my final comment was that I would like to get you back on again. I've got two topics that we'd like to cover, <laughs> uh, not including black pudding. Um, <laughs> is is one you mentioned briefly is the the fake meat. I think that would be an interesting one, and activist actions on processing plants, which we have seen not as much actually in the last year. That's actually we've seen it not 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 to have pretty hard for them to move around in yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's not tempt them let's it's not give them any ideas uh, but no other other than that look thanks for thanks for coming along and i look forward to seeing additional supplies of uh, black pudding on the shelves because fyi it is worth more per kilogram than i fillet steak and um, so i guess thanks for coming along uh, if you enjoyed the podcast if you're a listener uh, share it with your friends and family if you didn't like the podcast, uh, we'll share it with people you don't like. Uh, leave, a, leave a review uh, and uh, sharing is caring. Yeah, thanks very much, Patrick. See you when you got nothing on. Yeah, you know? no worries, boys. That, that'll be uh, uh, always available for you. And, and certainly when we're talking about black pudding, the, 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 the truffle of the red meat industry, I'm looking forward to far more discussions around that in the future. I'm just going to quickly copyright that. <laughs> Ciao for Cheers. now. Cheers. All right, boys, thank you.